And good morning to you. Good morning. I'm Dave Mitchell, and uh, I also am on staff, just like Matt Doan. And uh, not exactly like Matt Doan, but sort of like Matt Doan. And so it's great to be worshiping with you. We are in the process of going through a tremendous book called the book of Ephesians from the New Testament. And if you have a Bible, I encourage you to even look at the table of contents if you need to do that in the New Testament, or take the Bible in the chair rack in front of you, or uh, if you have it on your phone or your iPad or your computer, whichever means is best for you. And then we also have an outline that we provide for you each Sunday so that you can follow along. And uh, one of the most important things we'll be talking about this morning is how the Word of God is the guiding force in our lives I always want to stop every so often and just show you that one of the things that's really important to me is to assure everything that I would say up here is not sort of my opinion or my thoughts or uh, notions that I have or uh, something I read in the newspaper, uh, although those things are sometimes added in, but what we are trying to do is to follow what God says. And Ephesians chapter 4 is where we are today. And you notice that what it takes to walk worthy of our calling, three things. When we have biblical leaders, when we strive for biblical growth, and when we experience the following results. And so we want to be guided by that. And I try to put scriptures in those little uh, points so that you can see that, again, it's not just something I thought of and that would be a neat idea, but it's what God is telling us to do. And so this morning, I was reading through some quotes from Mark Twain. It's amazing some of these guys like Mark Twain can say so much in one sentence that it just sort of reverberates beyond that. I was intrigued by one of his quotes, and I have another one a little bit later on if I remember to use it. Uh, And he said this, the two most important days of your lives are these. First, the day you were born. Secondly, the day you understand why. And this morning, I want us to understand better why all of us in this room are born. All of us in this room are born, right? I think 99% of us at least were born. And so we want to be able to establish why that is important for us. And Ephesians is the church, is a city that is in the Ephesus, that is in the country of Turkey today. And you see it on the screen there. Let me read the text that is relevant for us this day. And it's really a continuation of where we were last week in Ephesians 4.1. And now in Ephesians 4.7, the Apostle Paul writes to us these wonderful words. These words from 7 to 16 is like the core of who the church should be. He says, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, and he quotes from Psalm 68, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children 
tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, and from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I mean, that's a ton. You could spend almost a half an hour on each of those verses that are there. But when he helps us to understand why we were born, he wants us to understand that we are going to walk in a certain way. We want to walk in a way that is worthy of the calling, and that goes all the way back to verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. This is a continuation of what that walk should look like. And this whole idea of walking worthy, again, going back to last Sunday, and I know that sometimes we tune in and out. Uh, Pastors, that's just uh, part of the uh, cost of doing business. And the word worthy there is axios, which means to be in balance, you might recall. It is the idea that it's taken from the marketplace where a butcher would have meat on one side and the bartering chips would be on the other side. And he says, once you have put your bartering chips that is the same weight as the meat, then that is a worthy price, he would say. In the context of the Apostle Paul, what I believe is on one side and how I live it is on the other side. And when I believe certain is to be holy, then on the other side I better be living it. I want to be in balance with what I believe, I want to be in balance with who God is. If God is a holy God and a wise God, I want to be as holy as He is. I want to be as wise as He is. It doesn't come automatically. It's something He gives to us through His Son, Jesus. Now, how do you continue to live a worthy life? All of us in this room have reality checks of things that we struggle with, failures we have experienced, disappointments in life, All of us in this room have had that one time or another. And to say that I should be as holy as God is, Dave, you don't understand the struggles I've had. You don't understand my past. I may not, but God does. And God wants us to be worthy. So he makes it possible for us to walk worthily before him so that I live the calling that he's called me into so that I know why I was born the day I was born. And here are three ways that God helps us to walk worthily. When you have biblical leaders, the highest leader of our church, and I sometimes say this, and it might sound a little tongue-in-cheek, but some people say that I am the senior pastor. In point of fact, I say no. Jesus is our senior pastor. He is the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd. And no one exceeds him. And it works out really well because when people come and complain about something to me, I say, let's go talk to the senior pastor because he's in charge. So he'll straighten it out for us. And so isn't it nice to just sort of scuff off responsibility and pass it on to someone who can't always respond immediately? At least I hope he doesn't. Jesus alone is the victor. He alone is the head of the church. He is in charge. And it reminds me, I uh, found this little news article. I'm going to depress you with this. 
so hang on. The, uh, this is a, goes back a few years, but there's a national zoo back in Washington, D.C. Here's a news clip from the UPI. It used to be out there. It's very sad. The egg-laying queen ant at the national zoo was accidentally decapitated by worker ants, but her loyal subjects are still tending to her as if she were alive. The worker ants, all daughters of the queen, lopped off the queen's head, apparently by mistake. How do you, oh, whoops, uh, goof there. Um, Apparently by mistake, while trying to squeeze her through a small hole in their nest. Ed Smith said, the man who cares for the leaf-cutting tropical insects housed in the zoo's glass-fronted display case. The ant's head and four of her legs were removed in an effort to get the queen from her chambers to a better location. Well, at least they got her to a better location. (laughs) He said, it's not time to mourn yet. (laughs) Yeah, national mourning, lower the flags to the half-staff. It's not time to mourn yet. It's still early for the colony. As far as the ants are concerned... The queen is still there. And so they still serve her because they go by smell. They smell the queen, think, oh, the queen must be alive. Uh, They don't understand how dead she really is. Why do I throw in something as silly as that? Because sometimes churches and sometimes even believers, we continue to function and there is a deadness to the leadership. Now, we don't literally take people's heads off, but there is sometimes a sense that there is no leadership, there is no head. I don't have an allegiance to Jesus Christ. I don't have allegiance to the leadership that God has placed in the church. And sometimes, like the working ants, these daughter ants, these daughter ants are just going through the motions, and some people in the church are just going through the motions, but they have no allegiance to the leadership and the head of who rules over that church. And it's just going through the motions. A lot of churches that are just going through the rites and the regulations and the rituals and the religious activities, but it has no connection to the head who is Jesus Christ. And so as Christ gives us to this, this command that he is the senior pastor, Paul quotes from Psalm 68, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. How did Christ give us gifts? It goes back to the Old Testament. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to the men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. So what's he talking about there? Here's, here's what was happening. Psalm 68 was written because King David, the great king of the nation of Israel, had come and he conquered the Jebusite city. The Jebusite city was Jerusalem. And as he conquered Jerusalem, he wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And he wanted to make Jerusalem the place of worship where someday the temple would be built that they would worship God in. And as the king would come back after being victorious over the enemies of the Jebusites, that is the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem, one of the things the king would do is he would come and he would parade those that he had held captive. Those are the enemy. He would parade the enemy in front of the citizens of the community. 
Another thing the king would do is he would come and take all the goods that were stolen away from the enemies. Uh, They would have a parade of all the the, uh, gold and the silver and the precious stones that they had taken from the enemy camp, and he would parade all those things in front of the community citizens that the king would rule over to show them the triumph and the things that are going to enrich all of them as a kingdom. One of the other things the king would do is he would come back from the enemy state. He would bring his own soldiers that had been taken captive by the enemy force, and he would take his own soldiers, set them free, and he would march those soldiers back as they would reunite with their family, having been held by the captive by the enemy, and he would parade them as men who had been set free from the captivity of the enemy camp. And Paul takes that concept that the Jews in those days would remember, and he says, that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the conquering king. He has come back to display to everyone that he is defeating the enemy, that he is distributing gifts, gifts of God's grace, gifts to be carried out in the ministry of the church, gifts that you and I enjoy through the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to do the work that God's called us to do, and that he has also come to take those that have been held captive by the enemy force, and he wants to set them free. And you and I all know people, and many of us are those people who have been held captive by the enemy force And we have been set free from sin, from satanic power, and we're set free to live a life that we never thought we'd be able to live. But by the grace of God, the gift of grace that is there in verse 7, the gift of God's grace, he gives me capacity to live in a way I never thought I could live so that I could be worthy of the calling, so that I can be in balance with the holiness of God because of what Jesus did. That's why we celebrate Jesus as our senior pastor. He alone is the victorious one. But then he also gives us human beings to be leaders. We need to establish godly people to serve in the church. We have biblical leaders here. For example, he goes on to describe some of them in verse 11. Let me just talk about them for just a moment. He gave to some as apostles. There were the strictly defined apostles of the 12 that Jesus called, and then Judas failed, betrayed, then in Acts, they hired a new apostle, so they still have the 12. But then there are others like Barnabas, Paul, not part of the strict original 12, but those who also were apostles. The word apostle means the, the one who was sent forth. And so if they have seen the resurrected Jesus, they become those cornerstone men who ruled. Then there are the prophets. The prophets would be those that would come along before we had the full book of the revelation of God in the Bible, and those prophets would tell forth God's word, and they would foretell future events. And so there were the prophets that would be going on. We also have had apostles and prophets today. Too often those that claim to be apostles, for example, way back in the days when I was at Westmont College, as my wife was as well, uh, we came to a place, and I've, I think I've addressed this before, a church called The Walk that was down in the Los Angeles area, and the leaders of that church were called apostles. They called themselves apostles. Too often in that capacity, they have this authoritarian stance. And I remember hearing one of those apostles say to one of the college students that you should not go back to your parents' home. You should remain here with us. But here's a 19-year-old kid being told by this apostle, don't go back to mom and dad, stay here with us. Because he wants to brainwash that, that young person. Then there are the prophets. There are prophets today. 
One of the big headlines, if you read anything on Christianity Today, is this fellow by the name of Wayne Jolly. Wayne Jolly had a ministry called The Gathering back in the South, and uh, they acquired millions of dollars. In fact, the, the Gathering was essentially a church, and they had, the church had built this Wayne Jolly, a million-dollar home, and done something like $400,000 of rehab for the home, and, and uh, everything that Wayne Jolly said the people had to do, and he would tell them, you should work here, you should work there. And he had this sort of authoritarian status over the people. And so there is a danger in those that claim to be apostles and prophets today because there's a propensity for all of us to have a selfish authoritarianism in us where we think it's an ego boost, an ego boost to tell people what to do. And so I look a little bit critical of those who claim such titles today because there's a danger. Wayne Jolly did die this last week. So God has a way of sometimes taking care of those that stand in his way. There are some who are evangelists, and they go out preaching, and there were women in the New Testament, there were men in the New Testament did that, and then there are pastors and their teachers. The word pastor, the only time in the Bible that the word pastor is used is in this passage. And we use the word pastor here a lot for everybody on staff, it seems, a lot of the the folks that serve, primarily the men. But the word pastor is only here defined as pastor. Everywhere else you see this Greek word for pastor, it is translated shepherd because it's shepherd. It's a shepherd. There is nothing special about the word pastor except for the fact that he uses it here when Paul could have said shepherd. And the people reading this would have said, oh yeah, shepherd. You see it in 1 Peter 5. You see it in Hebrews. You see it repeatedly used elsewhere as the word shepherd. And there are other terms that could be used today. We choose to use the word pastor. In point of fact, in those days, they could have used the word bishop. Someone who oversees. And the word bishop or an overseer comes from the Greek word episkopos. Episkopos is the word that we get episcopalian from. And so there were some in those days who would call them bishops. You could call me a bishop. You might feel uncomfortable doing that as would I, but it's a biblical term. And there is no reason for not using it or using it. Then there is the, uh, also another word that is used as elders. The word elder comes from presbyteros, from which we are able to see the English word presbyterian. So presbyterian are elders, if you will. And so elders, bishops, overseers, pastors, A variety of names we could have chosen, but in the culture in which we live, we have chosen to use the word pastor. And so therefore, we are those who shepherd the flock. And the word pastor is not strictly defined to a male gender. It could be used in a female gender. Because anybody who shepherds anybody is shepherding. There are many of you who shepherd your own family. You shepherd your children. You shepherd in a small group Bible study. You shepherd in caring for student ministries and children's ministries. You provide a shepherding ministry, and that's what that is. And so God has given these terms, and then the teacher, pastor, teacher, is something I do, pastor and teach. And so some people combine the word teacher with pastor, but not every pastor is a teacher, but every teacher should be a pastor. And so there are just a little bit of background on the fact that we have designated leaders and we need to look to them as one that God has placed in a position 
and that if a pastor is ever not as holy as God is, then something needs to change. And that is a standard that we will not back down from here at Calvary Church. But not only do we have designated leaders like those, but we have you. All of you are in this category, if you're a believer in Jesus, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. My job is not to do your job. My job is to help you do your job, to equip you to do your job. We are here to equip you so that you can go out and do the work of an evangelist, do the work of a teacher, do the work of a pastor, so that you can go out there and you can care for those people, tell people about Jesus. You have relationships at work and in school and in neighborhoods that I'll never have. You have greater abilities to reach certain people that I'll never have that ability to reach them. And I commission you to go out there so that you can do the work of the service of the church. Reach people I can't reach. You reach people. I reach people you can't reach. We all have different gifts, different abilities. Just go out of there and do the work. We equip. This word equip is a wonderful term. Let me show you three ways that this word equip is used. It's used to repair a fishing net. So I want to repair my fishing net so when I scoop up the fish, it's, they stay in the net. It is used to restoring a broken bone. You reset the bone, you restore the bone so that bone can grow stronger. And where that break was, sometimes it's calcified and it's even stronger than it was before. And then thirdly, to replace a joint that is out of place. And you and I as saints, believers in Jesus, those are three things we do. We love to repair what is broken. We are here to repair broken marriages, broken hearts, broken financial situations. Whatever is broken, we are here to help repair it. Not everybody wants to follow that lead, but that's part of it. We are also here to restore. For those who have broken away from the faith, we love to restore you back to the faith. And then finally, replace. Sometimes people are taken up into heaven, they die. Sometimes people are in convalescent homes and they are no longer here. Well, we want to replace so that God's work goes on. Because it's not about us, it's about us replacing ourselves. It's about succession. I think about that in my role, and you should be thinking about that in your role. Because if I'm not here, who will sit in my seat if I'm not here? So we want to be replacing, restoring, and repairing. That's what we do. That's our calling. That makes us worthy. That's what Jesus did. When I'm doing it, I'm in balance with him. That's what our calling is. So God invites us into that. And that's how we are worthy. That's a very worthy life. And no matter your income, no matter your education, no matter your degrees, no matter how big or small your home is, no matter how many cars you have, no matter how gifted you are, no matter what your IQ is, those things are fine, whatever they may be. You can work to improve them. But this is the core that I'm talking about. That's why we're here. That's why we're saved. That's why we still breathe, to carry out this work of equipping And when we do that with biblical leaders, we strive for biblical growth. We want to grow. Primarily what Paul's talking about here is not numerical growth, but spiritual growth. 
to the building up of the body of Christ. We want to be built up and be stronger. How do we do that? To grow in unity. We grow in unity with one another in the faith until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And the word faith there is not my personal subjective faith in Jesus. It is what I believe. It is the body of truth. It is the sum total of my doctrinal foundation upon which I stand. It's biblical truth. It's the way God has taught me. I stand on that truth. So we have unity in what we believe. We, we are united around that. That's why I worked hard. I've been here now, as we acknowledged a couple of weeks ago, in a very uncomfortable surprise setting for me. Um, but one of the things I really believe in and have been committed to ever since the day I started here in 1995 is the unity of the body of faith. Because you can't get anything done if you're a divided house. And so we want to be united in that faith. And the, the word faith is talking about what I believe in. Here are some statistics that just came out this last week. From the Barna Group, David Kinneman runs that group, and I know him personally. And here is what he has told us, which may not be a surprise to you. Those who have this view of the Bible that it is good for a meaningful life, the elders, if you're 70 and above, you are considered to be an elder. And that's, not, that's a positive word. And so those 70 above, 65% of 70 above people believe that the Bible is meaningful for life. You drop it down, I'm a boomer. 56% of boomers believe that the Bible is a meaningful book for life. But when you go to the millennials, 18 to 31, just 27% buy into that. That's high risk. If you notice, the graph goes down. And we who believe in the unity of the body of faith, who stand on that, we better live in that. There's a danger that those of us are not passing on the value of the word of the Bible to the generations that follow. And I think the high risk for me and for us is when we say we believe in the Bible, but on the other side of the scale, we believe it, but we don't always live it. And that's high risk. We need to live it. We need to be on par. I remember some time ago, I shared with you, but a long time ago, I when I was in the city jail as a guest um, with a cop doing chaplain work. So I'm sitting in the jail. He's arresting somebody and they're fingerprinting all that stuff. So I'm standing there and uh, an officer comes out and says, hey, chaplain, uh, my um, customer, this criminal, uh, would like to talk to you. I go, okay. So I go into the interview room and he's been arrested for drug charges. He's a heroin dealer. I said, now, well, how can I help you? He says, well, I wanted to talk to a chaplain because I'm, I'm intrigued. You went to seminary, right? Yeah, I went to seminary, uh-huh. He says, well, do you read from the Greek New Testament or from the Hebrew New Testament? I said, well, you know, I have. I'm a little rusty these days. Oh, yeah. Because uh, I use the concordance. I use Strong's concordance, and I try to look up scriptures, and sometimes I have a hard time finding the right Greek word. Do you have some ideas that would help me on that? You go, oh, well, you know, that's probably something I could help you with. Uh, uh, how long are you in here for, you know? Um, and then he says, and I'm, I'm very intrigued on eschatology. 
I never have anybody used that word eschatology. I haven't heard that since I was in seminary in 1977. Eschatology, last things. He says, are you pre-trib or are you more post-trib? Well, I mean, we're talking about when the church will be taken up into heaven. And so we had that kind of a conversation. I've never had a conversation like that that I can remember in 20 years with anybody of you. I mean, you're all very smart people, but I'm not putting you down. But it, it was just stunning to me. I'm in the jail cell with a heroin drug addict dealer, and he's asking me seminary-like questions because he's had some training somewhere, somehow. And it's just a stark, stark reality check that we can have a whole lot of truth but be way out of balance and live in it. And so I encourage those of us who are boomers and elders, live it. Live it in a God-fearing, loving, gracious way, but live it. Don't pound it. Don't beat them up with it. Don't judge them. Don't criticize them. Just live it in a loving, gracious way. And let them see the value of how it changes your life. Let them see the change that Scripture makes, not telling them what to change, but you change. You live it. That's my appeal, that we would turn those numbers around. And then not only that, to grow in our relationship with Jesus, in the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the statue which belongs to the fullness of God. There's a ton of stuff there, but let me pick up on two words. To the knowledge of the Son of God. The word knowledge. That word for knowledge is a term that is used in a marriage relationship. Paul says, I want you to have a relationship with Jesus. There are two ways to know your spouse. You can know your spouse, for example, if you're a husband like I am, you can know your spouse, and and I don't know that I know all these things, but you can know, you can know their shoe size. You can know their dress size. You can know their height. You can know their birth date. You might even remember their GPA. You might know their IQ. You might know their address. Hopefully it's yours. Um, There's a lot of things you might know about them. Their hair color. You know all those things. Well, anybody can know those things about anybody. That's one form of knowledge. That's just a bunch of facts. And some people know Jesus that way, just a bunch of facts. But then there's a whole other way to know. And that comes out of a relationship that once you get married and the person you thought you knew, you didn't know as well as you thought you knew, and then you begin to learn. And having been married for 41 years, I'm still learning how to love joy. I'm still learning what that relationship looks like. I still say things I shouldn't say, like yesterday, but I won't even talk about it. Uh, So I still am learning. It's an acquired skill. So I want to know her better so I learn how to not say dumb things and learn how to say loving things, right? Am I alone, guys? No. Okay. Thanks. We'll start a support group. (laughs) When Paul talks about the knowledge of Jesus, the knowing of Jesus, he's not talking about that first strata I talked about, like uh, 
hair color, shoe size, dress size, etc., and always guess low. But he's not talking about those. <laughs> he's not talking about those. He's talking about knowing as I know joy after 41 years of learning and living and loving and still learning and living and learning how to love. Jesus is living. He is resurrected. He has conquered the enemy. And I am learning more about him every day. I have not acquired all that I need to know about him. I went to seminary. I went to two seminaries. I couldn't get it right the first time, so I had to go to a second seminary. So finally, I thought I would know it all, but I don't know it all because the more I live with Jesus, the more I learn about Jesus, the more I learn to love Jesus as a relationship, not as a fact-based theological study and doctrine, but as a relationship of a risen king who loves me and wants me to love him back. That's the knowledge. You should grow in your relationship with Jesus to a maturity. The word mature is teleos. We get the word telescope to be able to see all the way down. And I don't care how old you are. If you're living here, you're sitting here, you're breathing here, and you walk out of here, you're not retired. You're still becoming mature. There's no age limit on maturity. And when we do that, we experience three things in verses 14 through 16. Let me touch on them. We maintain convictions that are not compromised by false doctrine, trickery of men, or deceitful scheming. Those three things, they drive us nuts in our society today. Of the false doctrine, trickery of men, deceitful scheming. We are no longer to be children. We're not little kids, little two-year-olds being tossed around by this, that, and the other thing that's going on out there. Tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. He says, you don't do that anymore because you know Jesus relationally, because you know your belief system, your faith, it's solid. When you know your faith and you know Jesus, you're no longer being tossed around by every wind and every crazy idea and uh, nut jobs that are out there saying things on the radio and society and politicians and presidential candidates. There's just a lot of nuts out there. We can't be taken in by all that because we know where we are rooted and grounded. I love these two words. By the trickery of men, the word trickery is kubios. We get the word cube, like ice cube or dice. He says, no longer being in a gambling where you just sort of throw and roll dice and often those dice were loaded so that the numbers that they wanted would constantly turn up. He says, you're not living your life on sort of a gamble where you throw in dice and you hope the right numbers show up. You just don't live that way. Where every day is sort of a gamble? No. And secondly, craftiness. Craftiness, as I talked about in my email this last week, uh, the word pan is part of that word, and ergon, the other part, all works. We live in a world where there is craftiness, where anything goes. Whatever works for you. Doesn't work for me, whatever works for you. Whatever is your truth, it's not my truth. And I talk about this all the time. This is the world in which we live, where there's this relativism of anything goes. And we have this, this brokenness in our system. And in the church today, you know, if you follow politics, you see the candidates saying crazy things, and I'm not going to go down that road, but there's a lot of stuff that's out there that's just unbelievable, of belief systems about the unborn child, that up to nine months of pregnancy in the last of the ninth month, 
that there are those who are running for office who say that child has no rights. That's just craftiness. That's craftiness to the highest. Whatever works for you. Whatever you want to do. Who am I to say? You know? And even in the family. And let me delicately go through this very quickly. I'm almost out of time. It's the family that historically is under attack by the evil one. You go all the way back to say, let's King David, King Solomon. Why did King David ultimately have a failure towards the end of the last third of his life? Why did Solomon have a failure in his kingdom? And after Solomon, the kingdom became divided. Why did his sons rebel, become divisive? Because the family was broken. King David had many wives and many concubines. Oh, wow. And we think we have it bad. Solomon had hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines. And God says, don't do that. Stop it. But they did it anyways. And it's because of that brokenness of the family that it was passed down to generations that also lived even a worse life. And the kingdom of Israel was divided. The northern kingdom was stolen away in 700 586, the southern king, and it became utterly disturbed. And it's all rooted in the brokenness of the family. So I'm appealing with those of us who say that we claim Scripture. We believe what we believe to be true about the family, one man, one woman. Then be a family that follows Jesus in holiness. I remember when I was first starting out of this, the biggest problem of the family in the church was divorce. We never talk about divorce anymore. But it was a big problem back then. Now we talk about gay marriage. Well, what happened to the problem of divorce? What happened to the problem of couples living together before marriage? Well, that's, you know, it's, it's times of change. No, God hasn't changed. So for you and me, if you're on board with this, and your faith is strong in Jesus, let's reclaim the territory that is slipping away from us. Let's not just poke fun at certain sins. Let's look at all of them and let's live them in holiness so that we are, we are models of God and holiness and I'm on the other side and we're in balance. And we say, oh, but you don't know my story. I may not know your story, but we're here to repair, restore, and replace. If you're willing, we want to come alongside and reclaim lost territory, to the trickery of men, the craftiness and deceitful scheming. And Paul says, then therefore what we believe about those things, we communicate it. But we communicate it in love, in the truth and love. We communicate the truth and love. We must communicate in the truth and love. In my email this last week, I cited Ed Stetzer. If you ever see Ed Stetzer being his blog, you should look him up. He's got insights. But I love his response of what he invites us into. When we see people in craftiness and deceitful scheming and trickery of men, and we see these value systems that are so foreign to what we believe Scripture teaches, we don't get all frustrated. Now, we have four choices. We can conform, just give in, compromise, and say, hey, I just want to go along, get along. You know, that, that's one choice. Some people do that. Surrender. We can check out, 
We can say, I'm going to be living denial. I'm never going to read about anybody doing that. I'm just going to deny it's even out there and just be in my little holy huddle and do my own thing. Thirdly, we can combat them. We can become argumentative. We can antagonize. We can yell and scream. We can picket. We can have all kinds of ways to look ugly in what we believe. And then finally, the one I like, we can counter them. We can engage. I've said this before. We should engage without endorsing. Engage in a loving way, speaking the truth in love. So we have a tolerant love where we prop up people to hold them accountable to God. Do it in a loving and gracious way. We don't need to surrender what we believe. We just need to apply the Jesus life of how he engaged with the community. The community back then was much worse than the community today. Politicians in those days would think nothing of taking one of us as a believer and crucifying us. That was normal. We don't have to fear that today. So in many ways, we live in a better life, but we still see the erosion and we need to remember that Jesus is still the senior pastor. And as I was just talking to Jim Stratton just before the church, just before service started, it was a good reminder that we've still got the victory. You know, all the politicians that in Paul's day and all the Roman rulers in those days and all the kingdoms in that time, they're gone. But the church is still here. And we're still going to be here until Jesus comes back. And it may get a little rough. There might be all winds of false doctrines. But we're still going to be here. Because Jesus is still in charge. He's still alive. And so therefore, everyone commit to do that. We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. Notice how we all need to be together. According to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself. When we all are together, knitted together, every joint is in place. Every connection is meaningful. We're better together because God's called us all to build up one another in love. And that means people who don't go to church, and that means people who do go to church. And that means people who go to the wrong churches. We build them up in love, bringing them into the head who is Jesus Christ. We bring them to Jesus. He's the one who changes people. I can't change anybody, but Jesus can. So I invite you to be part of that. Be part of biblical leadership, part of a church that is spiritually growing, part of a church that sees these kind of results of working together. And it's a great story. It's an old one. Found it a long time ago. Let me share it because I just, I don't know, it just kind of hit me on the right way. This old girl by the name of Jamie, she's a teenager, a young teenager, like 14 years old. She had a terrible accident and she had to have her arm amputated. And as you can well imagine, a young teen like that would be just devastated as she was. And then she was away from the church for about a year, rehabbing. And finally she had enough nerve to go back to the church and to her Sunday school class, missing that arm. And the parents had said to the Sunday school teacher, please, don't draw attention to her. Don't do anything that helps her to, makes her feel uncomfortable. You got that. But then one Sunday, there was a substitute teacher. And as they were wrapping up their class, the substitute teacher did that neat little prayer. And uh, let me remind myself of that neat little prayer. Where they prayed this prayer. She said, now gather together. Here's the church. Here are the people. Open the door. See all the people. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. 
open the door, I don't know how to do it, and here are all the people. Well, when you have one arm, that doesn't work. And she said, I was so blessed because Jamie had a little guy who's 13 years old next to him. And he took his one arm and her remaining arm and together they said, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door, here's the people. I thought, as simple as that is, when you and I are wounded, we have another in the church that comes alongside to equip, to repair, restore, and replace, to bring him to Jesus and let Jesus mend that heart. I invite you into that world. Let me pray. Father, help us as we live our lives for you. Help us to be the people you want us to be. Help us to be worthy of the calling. Help us to walk in step with Jesus. If Jesus is on one side of the scale, oh God, may we be in balance with him. And when we're not, Father, help us to get back in balance with him. Repair, restore, and replace so that we are walking a worthy walk with Jesus. Help us, Father, on the journey. Give us the power of your spirit, the gifts of your grace. You are the victorious one. You are our senior pastor. We have our allegiance with you. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.